Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. As lockdown eases a little bit and we see the return to work for a small part of our population, we're being asked to be alert. And while, of course, we need to remain vigilant and careful about spreading infection and shielding those in our community who are at risk, there's a very different vulnerable population who need our alertness, our wild landscapes and the wildlife who live in them. As the world begins to get back to work, now more than ever, we need to focus on wildlife, on the natural world, and not lose some of the gains that we have seen as a byproduct of putting a human activity on hold. My guests today share a love of wetlands and naturally wilder landscapes and bring particular experience and expertise to the discussion. John Arbon was a senior reserve warden for 11 years at Welney Wetlands Centre in East Anglia before moving to the London Wetlands Centre in Barnes in 2000, where he's grounds and facilities manager. And as he just told me, he also lives on site, so there's no escape for him despite what's happening. John, welcome to Planet Pod and thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. It's lovely to be here. Ben MacDonald is a conservation writer, field director in wildlife television, and a naturalist, as well as working with BBC Springwatch and David Attenborough on the acclaimed Our Planet series. He's the author of a new book, Rebirding, which is to pelicans what NEP is to bison. He's a passionate advocate of bringing back historically important species as part of rewilding. Ben, welcome to Planet Pod, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Lovely to be here. I think if I may, I'd like to start our discussion with a bit of an update as to where we are now. We've talked about rewilding and wildlife and what's been happening during the um, COVID lockdown a lot on the pod in the last few weeks. And, and John, although you've had to shut the Wetman Centre during the lockdown, I'm sure that doesn't mean that things have just gone into, uh, into dormitory mode. I'm sure people there are things happening, although there aren't people. Can you tell us what's been going on while you've had no visitors and what some of the current wildlife or bird life highlights are for you? Yeah, of course. Um, well, obviously, visitors stopped sometime in March. I think it was the 23rd of March. Um, but our wildlife didn't. So obviously, spring migration was just about kicking off then. Um, we, we had food shift chaffs over the winter anyway. Um, but March usually sees the advent of sand martins. Um, we now currently have 82 pairs in our sand martin bank. Uh, we haven't done a nest check yet, but there's 82 pairs we know using the, the entrances, so we're pretty certain that they've all got nests um, in some stage of incubation, uh, possibly a little bit too early for chicks. Um, so that's full on. Um, sedge warblers, reed warblers, black caps, well, chiff chaffs I've mentioned. Um, white throats and lesser white throats have turned up. I've not picked out a willow warbler yet, um, but I'm, I'm almost, as amongst the staff, because of my historical hearing problems, they're not that bad, but I'm, I'm just rubbish at birdsong. I've, I've had times when I've been really good at it, and then I just, it's sometimes, it has to be there all the time for me to really register it. That sounds like a bit of an occupational hazard if you work on a wetland centre. Well, it does, yeah, yeah. But there are staff that are way better than me at picking it up, and I usually ride on their shoulders, you know, just if they hear it, then I, and I know what it is. Um, things like we've got mute swans hatching off, we've got mallard and moorhens, coot, youngsters around. So the breeding season is in, say, full flow, still a little bit early yet, really, I suppose. Mm. Um, tufted uh, European pochard are lurking around, you know, along with gadwall, 
Um, and there, there are some potential birds nesting on site. Um, waders on the, on the grazing marsh, um, we have lapwing chicks. We're not sure how many at the moment. Um, and we have snipe floating around. The snipe are a bit of a funny one. They don't ever seem to want to nest on the reserve, but they go through the procedure, then they sort of disappear for a bit. Um, <laughs> and we've got red shank uh, around and calling as well. Um, so it's clearly... We usually do produce some red shank chicks at some stage. So it's really busy. You haven't got any people, but it's really, really busy with bird it life, is, as yeah. you do expect. And the Wetland Centre is in Barnes, so it's right in the... Well, it's kind of the edge of London, isn't it? But it's still a very, very metropolitan area. So it must be extraordinary juxtaposition of, of that your your kind of wetland acreage of calm and currently now probably very calm in terms of no people against the the city on the outskirts. Have you noticed any differences since the lockdown? Have you had more birds? Have you had more wildlife generally? I mean, how, how does it feel? Presumably there are no aeroplanes, so it's a lot quieter than normal. Yeah, the, the aeroplanes is, is the biggest man-made thing that you you miss and also the background of the city so vehicles and stuff like that um i i i think there are more birds this year i think it's difficult to quantify because we we aren't doing we are doing a survey at the moment we're we're in the middle of doing a breeding bird survey but um richard bullock our site ecologist has been uh, furloughed so it's the current staff and there are only seven of us uh, um, and probably some days there are only three or four of us on site. So it's what we can pick up. Um, But I feel like there are more birds around um, and I'm certainly pretty convinced that things like blue tits and great tits and long-tailed tits are actually having a really good nesting season. There seems to be even now birds, a lot of birds feeding young, carting food around. Uh, I have seen gold crests, and they definitely look as though they were feeding. Um, they were either looking for nesting material, but I saw a, a bird with material in its mouth of some sort, and I couldn't pin it. Yeah. So, pin do you think they're having or nesting. a better season because there's less competition, or they have a better season because they're less disturbed because there are just fewer people about? I've got to say, it's disturbance. Um, as much okay. as I love people and I love having visitors to the centre. Visitors do cause us our biggest problems uh, yeah. whenever you look at it. There are a little, two little quirks to that. It took me a long time this spring to spot a common lizard. And we are not sure that we're seeing as many water voles as we expect to see. Um, we're okay. looking in the, some of the usual places. And I'm just wondering if less people and possibly a bit more relaxed um, approach from predators... So obviously urban foxes are one of our key predators, but herons are one of our key predators as well. And I've noticed a few jays that are pretty actively running around or flying around. Um, And blackbirds and thrushes will take common lizards as well. And we're just wondering amongst ourselves if if this is not accidental, if if less visitors mean that the birds are hunting for food more readily in places where certainly the places on like... You expect to see lizards on bridge rails, especially mm. in the sun. And I've had to really look hard to find common lizards. That's really interesting, isn't it? And I think that's what's been fascinating about this period of COVID lockdown, and we've talked about this on the programme before, is that there seems to be a shift in the way the world is um, behaving around us. And it's 
possibly not doing anything different. We're possibly just noticing it more or possibly is reacting to the absence of human presence. And the kind of rewilding movement that we talk about a lot, of which you're a great proponent, Ben, is about trying to recreate a world before human intervention was as dramatic as it is. And very often people talk about that as being pre-industrial, which of course is always that famous measure that we use when we talk about climate change and Earth's heating. Mm. But actually, I think you prefer to go even further back than that, don't you? And you talk about resetting our baseline to a much earlier <coughs> age. And you use that expression that people use a lot, shifting baselines. So can you just start by giving us a little sense of what that might mean? Where, where would you put the clock start and what is a shifting baseline? Well, I think where you put the clock um, depends on the amount of land that you have available and what you are seeking to do with that land. Nobody would suggest that it's a good idea to take the productive arable farmlands of Wiltshire, Dorset, um, or indeed some parts of East Anglia and restore them to a primeval state because, of course, um, we are a nation of 65 million people and we need to feed ourselves. Um, fortunately, what a lot of people don't realise is that 94 percent of Britain has yet to be built upon. There are huge areas in our country, particularly in the highlands of Scotland, the uplands of Wales, um, some of the very unproductive uh, farmlands of places like Somerset, where it would be infinitely wiser for all of us to um, engage in uh, rewilding or, as I increasingly prefer to call it restoration of habitat at a much, much larger scale than we're seeing at the present. And in terms of turning back the clock, I think you have to remember that by 1760, the sort of the general data which we agree the Industrial Revolution and the Anthropocene started, all of the keystone animals of the British Isles had already been eradicated. Uh, the beaver, the elk, uh, the wild horse, aurochs, the wild cattle, um, the vast uh, wild boar. Um, all of these animals would have once shaped the landscape to maximal diversity. So I don't think we need to necessarily turn back the clock by excluding people, by excluding farmers, by excluding jobs. In fact, quite the opposite. A lot of um, successful rewilding experiments like Yellowstone National Park have um, seen enormous increases in jobs. Um, but I do think we need to remember what we've lost. And in order to do that, um, we really need to go back more like a thousand years. Okay. And so is that where you'd put that baseline? Is that what we mean when we talk about shifting baselines? We put the baseline back to a point so far back we can actually track the changes in the progress. Um, because very often, I think what people say is, oh, let's just do it sort of pre-war or pre-Victorians yes. or something. Is yeah. that is that what we mean when we talk about that as a term? It is. But I mean, I've been having a lot of very interesting discussions with farmers, including the very inspired uh, sheep farmer, James Rebanks, up at the Lake District, about two very different forms of baselines. One is the baseline for the truly large depopulated areas of the United Kingdom, such as the Scottish Highlands, which at the moment are not predominantly farmed. Um, they're not producing any of our food and they're not really producing any of our jobs. Now, in those areas, I think we can have the audacity to turn the clock back a very long way indeed. So we're looking at the restoration of species like the lynx, the elk, uh, beavers, of course, uh, wild boar and free roaming cattle and horses. Um, but we also need to be cognizant that our farmland landscapes, even 200, 250 years ago, were an entirely different type of landscape to what we're seeing today. So when a lot of people talk about traditional farming in Britain being under threat, they forget there is no traditional farming in Britain. We are the most industrialized farming nation anywhere in Europe. So what interests me then is traveling to places like Eastern Europe, uh, Poland, the uplands of Hungary, or indeed the uplands of northern Spain, and looking at what is the baseline that we can set for farming. And that's 
equally exciting because what you're looking at is a landscape very much more like you're seeing on the Nepa State, which is a combination of scrubland, woodland, grassland, um, zero pesticides, zero chemicals, less land drainage, heaving with butterflies, um, heaving with birds, deafened by nightingales. So I think we need two different baselines for the agriculturally productive land of the United Kingdom and the areas that we think can best revert to a much wilder state. So it's much more creating a kind of a matrix, like a patchwork of, of different types of land uses and different types of engagement with land. And then, I mean, I think there's a rather terrifying statistic in your book where you talk about 88% of Wales is livestock farmed, but that only contributes 0.7% to the economy and jobs for less than 2%. So it's not even, it's not just that it's not economically productive, it's also not productive in terms of employment and people needing to have employment from the land, is it? And I think there's so much more we could do if we used our land differently, people could be engaged in different sorts of jobs. It's not as if we just want to turn it all over to free-ranging cattle and, dare I say, wolves even, possibly. Well, um, we actually uh, want to use it for people as well, don't we? Well, of course. I mean, as somebody whose family originates from the farmlands of central Wales and Pembrokeshire, the greatest sadness of the sheep farming operation in Wales is that it's killing the next generation of rural jobs. It's almost a secondary consideration that um, the uplands of Wales are sadly ecological deserts. So it's not actually in the long-term interests of any rural Welsh community um, to be solely reliant upon intensive sheep farming for a number of reasons. Obviously, protection against flooding, um, carbon sequestration, pollinators, um, any of these obvious benefits to the wider community before you even start talking about, you know, the sort of the alpha characters like the wolf and the, um, the lynx, which is obviously perhaps a more uh, compatible animal with some areas of the British landscape than the wolf. So I think we just need to realize that actually one of the greatest problems with industrial farming is it is also driving farming towards an eventual extinction as much as it is driving the wildlife that we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the you know, net that we talk about often on this program, we've obviously had Izzy and her team on the pod in the past, it does actually provide a huge number of jobs. I mean, I think she says they have more people working actively on the estate than they had kind of in the 1850s. So yeah. there is an opportunity for people to engage. And presumably the same is true for you, John. I mean, you haven't got many staff on site at the moment, but given the size of the of the wetland centre, it provides not only jobs and an, and an income for the local community in some sense, it also provides real insight for people to understand about how differently they could engage with our natural world. And that's a really, really important part of people's natural education, isn't it? So it's, it's yeah. got a sort of dual purpose. Absolutely. Yeah, we're a 100 acre site, 110 acre site. We employ 40 full-time members of staff, plus 35 part-time casual and then we have about 180 volunteers. So if you if you turn back time and say prior to 2000, this site was a, a reservoir holding whatever water it needed for this part of London, it, it wouldn't have created that kind of job retention at that time. So, and, and you know, if you look at how we manage stuff, I, I just think that in a modern day society, we're very good at using machinery, but nature doesn't like us using machinery and you have to turn it back and go down to a, a manual sort of type of operation. And that seems to be more sympathetic to, to what nature can tolerate. So 
I think from that point of view, yes, it's very important. We have actually, you know, we've created, we've been open since 2000. We roughly average about 180 to 200,000 visitors a year. That generates an income for the, the, the community. We, we, we do events and all sorts of different things. Business comes in and uses our facilities for conferences. And we currently get a lot of support from corporate volunteering. So we have corporate mm. work groups. Um, that is a really good way to engage some of the big corporates. You know, we've got Coca-Cola on our doorstep. We've got some of the big TV production companies on our doorstep, uh, Turner TV or whatever they're called, all the big local banks uh, in the city of London. I know we get a lot of support from HSBC, but just by bringing them here, engaging with them, that is, is we're getting a message across that, you know, this site was an industrial site, albeit just a reservoir. We have re-landscaped it. We have replanted it. And nature has actually found its way here. You know, the only thing we've really introduced, and we have done some introductions, um, water voles, slow worms, grass snakes, but common lizards found their own way here. We didn't, we didn't really introduce It's almost, them. it's rewilded, or do I say it, you know, rebirded. I had to use Ben's expression yes, on its absolutely. own, hasn't it? But it, it's become yeah. enormously productive, even though it's actually relatively quite a small piece of land. And, yeah. and I think that's sometimes the myth, isn't it? That when we talk about rewilding, everybody thinks, oh, you've got to have hundreds of thousands of acres to be able to do this. But Ben, your perspective on this is actually about birds specifically, because we, when we talk about rewilding, you've already mentioned the apex predators and the lynx and things. Actually, you're much more interested in the kind of rebirding aspect, aren't you? What, what do you mean when you talk about rebirding? What is it that you want to do? Well, rebirding is a way into looking at the, you know, the most popular natural family in the UK, which is birds, looking at the true scale of what we've lost, and then looking at how we can use natural processes to bring those species back. So, for example, you know, if you look at the inspirational work that people like John are doing in London, They've got a small area of land, as most nature reserves are very small. Uh, It's not their fault. They're in the middle of London. Um, And government has not yet participated in buying large areas of land for the natural world in the way that has been happening in the United States, for example, or Germany over the best part of a century. So what you have to do if you have a small area of land is you have to manage it very intensively. Um, you know, when I've been down to the Barnes Wetland Centre in London, you know, there's a huge amount of habitat squeezed into a very small space, which is a very impressive achievement by the WWT. But it's happening partly um, because if you have a very small area of land, um, you have to manage it very intensively. What you start seeing if you can... Um, sequester larger areas of land for nature is that you can start having animals doing a lot of the heavy lifting for you. And, you know, the one I'd like to talk about particularly um, in relation to wetlands is the beaver, the truly extraordinary steward of wetlands given any opportunity. Everything from the large copper butterfly uh, to the gargany to the bittern, um, indeed to salmon, um, would originally, before people like John were creating fantastic habitat in the middle of London, have been both created created and protected by the diverse actions of beavers in a landscape. Beavers are truly extraordinary animals, and they can create anything from willow coppice, so think blue throat, willow tit, to shallow flooded meadow, think red shank, gargany, shoveler, um, all the way to saturated decaying woodland, think lesser spotted woodpecker. And then, of course, as beavers abandon their ponds, they give way over time to meadows. So simply by having beavers in the landscape, you can create probably all of the habitats that we're seeing at the Wildfowl and Wetland Centre Reserve in London. 
However, for that to happen, there not only needs to be a widespread acceptance of what beavers do, but there needs to be a little bit of humility on the part of ourselves as conservationists that actually animals know best. And I think you know, what we're seeing in a lot of Europe is that acceptance that actually habitats are naturally stewarded best to maximal diversity by the animals that have been managing them for millions of years, perhaps rather than the human conservationists who've been managing them for a hundred years. But in order to rebird Britain, we need habitats of sufficient scale. Because, of course, as John will point out, if you have a very small habitat, like an island oasis in the middle of London, then you need to manage it very carefully. But if you have a big habitat, like a floodplain, say in the middle of Somerset or Cambridgeshire, an area the size of NEP, or indeed much bigger than NEP, then you can begin to allow animals to exercise those decisions. And what you get is a much more diverse, robust and sustainable landscape. But of course, you still have conservationists keeping an eye on the beavers, uh, just as they are at NEP, and you know a big resurgence in ecotourism jobs as well. Do you think the British public's ready for that? Because I mean, my, you know, I've got dozens of questions I want to ask you. I mean, one of which has to be, of course, COVID related, because we've all become much more aware of what's yeah. on our doorsteps. We've been much more in tune with nature. Even people who live in very urban areas are being able to interact with nature in a different way because of the lack of, of pollution and noise pollution. Do you think as a nation we're ready for that? Because already we're getting the kickback, aren't we? Lots of um, articles saying, oh, well, that's the trouble. These people who want to stop climate change, they just want to make the world a permanent COVID. You know, we won't be able to go anywhere. We're able to drive. We won't be able to fly. You know, do you think as a culture we're ready for that? And also, how realistic is it? I know you talked about having, you know, 94% of the of the country not built on, but there always seems to be a demand for land and for building. I mean, how realistic is it getting, you know, getting people to accept that as a, as a, as a way forward? Well, I mean, it's it's infinitely realistic. I mean, the lobbies who block this are very small, but they are very powerful. However, the uh, the nature lobby in Britain consists of millions of people who want to see a better world for their children and their grandchildren. Um, I think we can maybe organise ourselves in different ways to be more effective. And I think we must put the economic arguments much more strongly than we do at the moment, because I think, you know, the economy is important, jobs are important, and fortunately, they are on the side of rewilding and ecological restoration. Um, but let's look at some concrete examples of where this could happen, because I think one of the biggest problems is people talk very generally about rewilding, and then people say, well, hang on, you know, we're growing our food and we've got our cities, so where's it going to go? Well, I'll tell you where it could go. So 8% of Britain um, the entirety of the British landmass is deer estate. All of that deer estate is in Scotland. So we're talking areas central Sutherland, Cape Wrath, um, the Western Highlands. And those areas currently aren't really doing anything for anybody. There isn't a single crop plant there. There are hardly any jobs. There's one job for every seven square kilometres of the central Scottish Highlands. And of course, they are entirely denuded by deer. Now, of course, deer are one half of an ecosystem and predators like lynx and wolves um, are the other. But these areas are enormous. The Scottish deer estates alone cover an area twice the size of Yellowstone National Park in the USA, one of the most famous wild areas on the planet. 
as very similar habitat as well. And if those were restored to a natural state, we would therefore have an area twice the size of Yellowstone National Park covered in willows, birches, aspen, pine. Um, we would obviously see a resurgence in British wildlife that hasn't been seen in the best part of 3,000 years. And we would also see an enormous resurgence in the jobs that a lot of people in the Scottish Highlands lost after the clearances. Now, that is a very simple example of how we could take 8% of Britain, restore it to a natural state, have a positive impact on jobs, and zero impact on food production. I suspect Next. those estates are in private hands, though, aren't they? So there has a sort of semi-political dimension to this. Well, I absolutely agree with you, and it makes total sense. If they're privately owned, are we talking about purchasing the land back or trying to convince the landowners to behave differently? Well, I think I think we should pursue both. I think there are a lot of well-meaning estate owners, probably in the late 60s and 70s, and I, I know several of them who have some feeling deep down that there should be a heck of a lot more going on on their land than there is. But um, because all their money is tied up on the land, they don't actually have the spare money needed to engage in these schemes. So, you know, if we had visionary, ecological-minded governments who would approach the landowners and propose to buy the land, which is effectively what Roosevelt did in the United States, that would be one solution. The other one would be to subsidise all of these estates to do something remarkable, which is to participate in the regeneration of woodlands. Mm -hmm. So you would give each estate a subsidy needed to make the changes. Now, a lot of people will at this point say, well, no, hang on, you know, these are very rich people. Why are we giving them more money? Well, okay, fair enough. But that, that's what I describe as a class argument. I'm somebody who's far more interested in outcomes. So I think you know, a lot of these states have inherited this damaged 19th century model, whether that is grouse shooting in the uplands of northern England or southern Scotland or deer estates in the highlands. Um, it's been handed down to them. They've continued to administer that model. And it's for us to bring them something that is both more lucrative and more exciting. That's possibly why people describe your book as a, a manifesto for ecological change, isn't it? Because that's actually quite a radical idea. And I think it's one that would find favour with a lot of people. I mean, and I do want to talk to you a little bit more in a minute about your beloved pelicans. But before I do that, can I just pop back to John for a second and say, you know, a lot of what Ben's talking about is very large areas of land. And of course, many pod listeners don't have that. Most of them probably have small gardens. They may not even have gardens. From your experience of working in a, a sort of a, an oasis inside a very urban surround. What can people do to support birds and wildlife in their own small semi-urban or urban environments? And whatever that form of wildlife is, whether it's something as simple as the sparrow, which we've lost so many of over recent years, or something a bit more exotic. Um, I think more of what we're doing. I, <coughs> the thing is, is that I think there is a groundswell of people that want to connect with nature. We see that with our visitors. We see it with our education programmes. I think it's giving people the opportunity. I mean, if you've got a garden, you can set aside some of it. It doesn't have to be manicured to the nth degree so that there's no wildlife there. There are some conundrums there. I, I've not travelled that extensively, but I um, went to Yellowstone two years ago and that, that blew me away. I've been to northern France. I've been to Scandinavia. I, I just think we, we have a disconnect. One of the things I saw, you know, it's this thing, it's why do things do really well in one spot? Maybe they shouldn't be there and they don't do very well here. I was with a guy in North America who lives in Seattle and he was he's a birder and they've got more, ha more house sparrows than we have. Why, they're an alien bird. They don't want them. They were introduced. 
but what's clicked over there that we've lost here? And, and one of the biggest conurbations that you can see Hasparrows in Seattle is around McDonald's restaurants. It's a strange conundrum. It's, you know, why don't they like British McDonald's restaurants? Um, but even more startling, I was in northern France about five years ago doing a, a, a trip with my, my sons looking at the D-Day beaches, but the, the small guest house that we stayed at in a very rural, small village on, on the coast of Normandy. And just outside of our bedroom window, there was a spotted flycatcher. And I haven't seen a spotted flycatcher for like 10 years because they're just so scarce now that they've disappeared. And yet all around this garden in France, there was loads of stuff there. It's only just across the channel. It's, it's not a million miles away. So what are we doing in this country that is excluding stuff or, or you know, making it harder for stuff to thrive to, compared to what they're doing in France or even why, why are house sparrows doing wonderfully well in loads of American cities when they can't do well in our cities? So there's a fundamental there that we need to look at. I, I, I don't understand it. It's one of those conundrums. I think the British public do a fantastic job. You know, while we've had lockdown, I saw a report the other day from one of a, a pest control company that says more people are feeding birds in their back gardens because obviously they're getting bored and they want to do things. You know, I know Dave Lindo, the urban bird, is stuck in, front, in, in Spain, but he's going on about everything that goes on about it in an urban environment. He's a great advocate of bird watching in urban environments. And He joined us on the pod from his flat just a few yeah. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's just how we connect. I, there are lots of things. I, I love having corporate work groups here because we can talk to, I think if you can get in and get a message down in a, to, a, to a city bank or a, an, an organisation at the lowest level of their employees, that message has got to work its way to the top. Um, yeah, it's about getting people engaged, isn't it? But yeah. Ben, can you answer John's question? Why are some species doing so, I mean, we've lost all these sparrows. Why are some species yeah. doing so much better in other parts of the world? Well, I started writing Rebirding and the realisation of coming back from every other country, really, except the UK, um, enjoys a far greater level of um, and a population abundance and diversity of insectivorous birds. Of course, the house sparrow is one of those. And, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, species like the red-backed shrike, uh, which follow cattle around um, eating dung beetles, are extremely common in eastern Poland and extinct in Britain. Uh, the vineck, which breeds in old orchards commonly across eastern Europe, has vanished completely. And if you go to the farmlands of eastern Europe, or indeed the oldest areas of um, farmed land in Spain and France, uh, turtle doves, cuckoos, nightingales, spotted flycatchers, all of these birds that we are talking about becoming extinct are not only not becoming extinct, but they are still actively common species, particularly in the East. And it, it comes down in, in brief to the degree of cleansing that we have been able to effect in our landscapes, both urban and in the, um, in the countryside. So house sparrows, for example, are much more uh, successful when they can feed aphids and invertebrates to their chicks than when they can regurgitate uh, hu a, what you would call human-fueled matter, such as a fatball feeder. Mm -hmm. So there's no substitute from keeping our gardens nice and bushy as they are in France. Um, and there's no substitute from not using Roundup, not using um, herbicides or pesticides in our garden, not sterilizing our gardens to the last degree. And this is why I wrote an entire chapter in Rebirding 
our birds, uh, looking at a disease called ecological tidiness disorder. Now, this, yes. is a human, this is a human disease that I think would explain the difference between the startling abundance of spotted flycatchers in the French countryside and villages and um, the lack of spotted flycatchers in the United Kingdom is that spotted flycatchers um, need to feed their chicks on hundreds of thousands of flying insects in order to survive. Bees, butterflies, hoverflies, hornets, um, crane flies. Uh, they need to intercept those in the air. So unless the air is filled with buzzing invertebrates, you are not going to have spotted flycatchers. And the simple truth is in France, nobody's tidying up their old orchards. Nobody's ripping the ivy off their houses. Nobody is removing the nectar sources from their gardens to create decking. It is entirely a cultural difference between the sterility that we have been able to affect in many areas of um, urban Britain and the fact that the French, that who are just a little bit more laissez-faire, shall we say, um, about their villages, um, have more nectar. So they have more bees. They mm. use herbicides less in their garden. And by the time you get to Poland or Hungary, the commonest bird in a village is the nightingale. And that tells you everything. Because, you know, the streets are lined with old, you know, hawthorns, elders, uh, blackthorns and gelder, uh, dog rose. And that's where the nightingales are. So simply yeah. by embracing scruffiness and an absence of chemicals in our villages, um, we can hopefully turn that situation around. Yeah, how, do we, how do we break that? Do, do we have to break down the companies, the government? Um, somebody is telling us to do that when it actually some of us know it's perfectly wrong and we shouldn't be doing it. It's just how we break that. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that one of the first things to open after the easing of lockdown was was large sale uh, DIY shops and garden centres. So it's this obsession that we have with our homes, our our castle, constantly improving, renewing, updating, putting new things into the garden. I mean, rewilding in your own garden can have such a dramatic effect. Not only does it give you far more time to sit down with a gin and tonic because you don't have to weed all the time, it also (laughs) means you've got far more wildlife. And they don't have to be big scale. but, But I can't let you go, Ben, without talking about... About the pelicans because I mean your great passion is, is is to reintroduce this enormous bird I mean don't even I know I have no idea what a Dalmatian pelican looks like so you'll have to tell us but I do get the sense that it is very large is that right it's very large it's one of the most majestic birds left on our planet and it's remarkable it survived at all it survived in the very old deltas of eastern Europe like the Danube and the Volga um, the most untouched uh, fish rich lakes of um, of Greece but this was a bird that bred not only on the Somerset levels but uh, the Fenlands of Cambridgeshire. We know it survived into Roman times. And we know that probably the reason that it vanished was not habitat loss at such an early stage, but because pelicans were very tasty. Um, um, The fossil record suggests um, very strongly that we actually harvested pelicans for food because pelicans, unlike mute swans, are colonial nesters. They're incredibly clumsy on land. And as you can imagine, the Mesolithic settlers in the levels would have had no problem at all in turning pelicans into a very, very tasty meat dish. So they vanished because of human depredation, as did many species. And of course, at such an early stage in our history as humans, we didn't have any idea what we're doing. But of course, now we do. There's no reason the Dalmatian pelican can't be restored to the British Isles, except that at the moment, the wetlands that we have, fantastically managed as they are by RSPB, WWT, are simply too small. But there are two areas in particular where over time, 
they could grow considerably larger. One is the Somerset levels, and the other is the Great Fenlands of Cambridgeshire. So I think it's important that we hold up species like the Dalmatian pelican, not as birds that can come back tomorrow, not even as birds that could come back in 10 years' time, but birds that can come back in perhaps 40 years' time if we do everything right and we hold our nerve and we don't accept these small, imperiled wetlands, very subject to depredation, subject to climate change, but we rebuild a landscape that is much larger, much more robust and much more diverse, then you can have these extraordinarily exciting, prehistoric, enormous birds uh, back in our lives. I mean, that would be extraordinary. And the, the amount of excitement that the, that the nesting stalks and the hatching of the chicks at NEP has caused, it gives me um, hope for for the fact that people would want to see extraordinary birds like this in our landscape, either reintroduced or, or naturally arriving. I mean, in terms of how big they are, I mean, how huge are they? And are they called Dalmatians because they're spotty or because they're called Dalmatians because that's where they come from? <laughs> they are called Dalmatians. Well, they're called Dalmatians because that was an area where they came from. I mean, right. in the same way the Dartford Warbler is called the Dartford Warbler because it used to breed on the heaths around London. Of course, it's no right. longer found in Dartford at all. But um, it's a truly extraordinary bird. It soars on uh, wings over three meters wide, but the wings are not only wide, but they're deep. So the, the bulk of that flying bird is even greater than that of the wandering albatross. Um, wow. They, they would make a mute swan look quite small. They would. So, they would make yeah. a mute swan and a white stork look quite small, which is amazing because if you think once upon a time in the marshes of Somerset, Dalmatian pelicans and mute swans, as they do in the Volga Delta in Russia, uh, would have bred side by side. And for whatever reason, there were more mute swans and they were probably far uh, wilier around our early ancestors. Otherwise, if you think about the size of a mute swan, it's also quite improbable that the mute swan has survived to this day. And one of the reasons was, of course, the early monks um, semi-domesticated mute swans and sort of turned them into this rather um, sort of semi-wild animal, uh, which sadly, of course, didn't happen with the pelican. But mm. I think it reminds us how how easy it would have been for humanity to take another route. But of course, we now live in a more educated age. And um, I very much hope within my lifetime, we can see the pelican return. Well, I do too, because they are magnificent and quite mythical beasts as well. Pelicans have a great, I mean, in literature and in, in, in folklore, they have a tremendous role to play as well, don't they, in terms of the things that, you know, pelicans do and plucking their breasts out to feed their chicks and all of those things. So um, thank, thank you, Ben. I can't let you go without asking you both for um, your hopes for the kind of what we're all calling the green recovery and your, I guess, suppose your one plea to people as we begin to come out of lockdown and things begin to ease up. What is it that you really think we can do as nations and what, what should we be asking people to do to make sure that we don't just go back to damaging our landscape and businesses as usual, which has such a high cost on the natural world. Ben, can I start with you? What would be your kind of main manifesto plea? Well, I, I, think, I think I would actually say we need to start very small. If we can't leave a roadside verge buzzing with flowers and insects, if we can't stop using glyphosate in our gardens, if we can't stop strimming the tops off hedgerows, destroying the possibility of bullfinches, how are we ever going to accept the beaver and how are we ever going to accept the lynx, the wolf, and wetlands the size of the Danube Delta, all of which are in our economic interest? So if we can start accepting the ivy on our walls, then that will go an enormous way towards eventually accepting something much bigger and greater and wilder in the future. 
That's a brilliant plea. Thank you. And John, how about from your perspective and that well, from the weapon I, I trust just, itself? Well, I think Ben's absolutely right. Um, I think more engagement, more more education, more getting the youngsters and the next generation on board. And I think they are. I think they know. And, and we ourselves know that we're messing the environment up and it's our next generation that's going to pay for it. But we need to get, I think we need to get business and governments to actually see that more clearly. And I still think that we are overshadowed by the, the making money, individuals in governments that, that hold big opinions, not the least, you know, the guy who's in charge of America. Um, you know, even now, Yellowstone is like under threat because of what this one person is doing. And that's absolutely wrong. People should realise what's happening. And what they've got is very precious. And we've got to get that message over. More fundamentally, yeah, we need more David Attenborough's. Um, we need more Ben's because he does the fabulous well, filming. Through, and, yeah, I, yeah. And, I, I, and I'm going to be shot in my house for not asking you about filming with the orangutans, Ben, but we'll have to have that back to have another conversation about that. Um, thank, thank you both. Um, Ben's beautiful book, Rebirding, is available. We'll have a link on the website to that and I'd encourage you to buy it from an independent bookseller if you can rather than from a well-known delivery chain. Thank you both for joining us. We really hopeful that the wildfowl and wetland trust sites will be open soon and people will be able to get back into nature on the pod we would say that the green recovery post-covid is an opportunity for us to change the world that we live in so please keep listening and keep campaigning for that effect my huge thanks to my guests ben mcdonald and john arvin for joining me my thanks to jim our producer who loyally sits in his cupboard producing this denied his beautiful studio i thank you to all of those who are continuing to work so hard to keep us safe during the pandemic and keep our basic services running and to you, our Planet Pod listeners, keep in touch. Tweet us at Planet Pod um, or visit the website www.theplanetpod.com to download previous episodes on rewilding and other topics and to subscribe. If you listen to the podcast on an app, please take time to rate and review the pod. We really appreciate your support and your feedback. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye. Take care. Stay safe and stay well. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.